agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the midweek. We're looking at the Constitution show. Oh, it's great to be back. Well, you know, I've had a lot of fun going through the Constitution, you know, and we approached Article 1, Section 8 the way I think uh, uh, a lot of, I don't know, political scientists, at least, when we're stepping into your field, <laughs> approach it, <laughs> which is we, we look at the necessary and proper clause first. And then what we've been kind of doing now this week is we're going to back up and take a look at the rest of the powers of Congress maybe get in a little bit to the powers denied Congress and, and, and finish up as much in Congress as we can. Uh, uh, so I was just going to start reading through this a little bit, Ken. You know, one of the big items that comes up first at the beginning of Article 1, Section 8 is this. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. And then it goes on to talk about to borrowing money on the credit of the United States and to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. Now, I know that you and Mike had touched that. Uh, but on the taxing clause, I mean, you wouldn't think that would be a huge deal, but that's actually a, a relatively big-ish question uh, because there's this whole big argument between Madison and Alex uh, and Hamilton over like, really what's the scope for the taxing clause. We don't think about this as much now because – uh, it's really the Hamiltonian view that wins out. But Madison argued that Congress had no independent power to tax and spend. It, it had to be in pursuit of some specific power. Again, very similarly to the arguments that we had when it came to the Necessary and Proper Clause. So that conception of the general welfare there at the beginning of Article 1 uh, doesn't mean quite as much. Uh, the Hamiltonian view, though, doesn't go into into kind of a full effect until much later when the Supreme Court finally weighs in. I know you. I, this is a case I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, you know, United States versus Butler uh, in 1936. And so ever since then, this has been a lot less relevant of a, of a or a big debate. But that in in that case, it argues that Congress can use the taxing clause without tying it to another one of its uh, uh, constitutional powers. Are there any other limits on the taxing clause, Ken? I know this is one of the ones you wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, actually, I would have probably started even um, a little a little earlier than than uh, even even with. Uh, I know you started pretty early with Hamilton and Madison, but I would have started even even a little earlier. Oh, back and, us up and, and then yeah, go for yeah, it. I love and it. Note, noted that um, you know one of the major defects of the Articles of Confederation, which was our earlier effort at having a, a constitution, was um, that the Con Continental Congress did not have a taxing power. Right. So yes. so so the the first. So I think you know some listeners probably know, but or some people probably know the years. They realize that our U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1787, but they may also remember that the Declaration of Independence was signed <laughs> in 1776. And that what war about was the over. 12 missing years, Ken? Yeah. I yes. don't know. <laughs> yes. So we had a different constitution during those years, and that was called the Wait, Articles. We've had more than one constitution. Yes. I'm some just... people would say we had three. It depends how you count them, but 
Well, we and or not to, because you have the British, you have the uh, Articles of Confederation, but you could make an argument for uh, the the states' constitutions too. Oh, oh, I was going to actually talk about the Articles of Association, which you oh, didn't true, even remember. About. Yeah. True, true. So, so during during the Revolutionary War, the the the, the colonies having declared independence from um, England, but having not yet um, you know formed any other kind of government. They, they formed an association under a document called the Articles of Association, but they replaced that with the Articles of Confederation by 1778. And then that was um, that was our constitution from 1778 to 1787. But the reason they met secretly in Philadelphia to overthrow uh, the United States government <laughs> that had been established under the Articles of Confederation and, and establish it, a new one. It was um, a radical moment. It was, it was a, a, yeah, yeah. a very radical moment. They, they felt that the Articles of Confederation um, w- was was too weak for a number of reasons, that, that if, if the most essential ends, the most essential reasons why we needed to have a United States government um, rather than just, you know, relying on the state governments to be independent countries that pledged uh, freedom or uh, friendship with one another, um, you know, why why have a why have a over overriding U.S. government at all? Um, they, they felt that, that that they needed a national government primarily to um, uh, be able to uh, protect the common defense. They were pretty sure that the U.K. would reinvade. Um, there were potential skirmishes even with France or Spain uh, in the offing, as well as with the Native American Indians. And, um, and so there was a thought that they needed a stronger framework for, for common defense and also that they needed to establish, um, uh, establish and enforce uh, an internal free trade zone so that there could be a, a national economy, which would create conditions for material prosperity. But all, all of that, you know, they, they wanted to have some kind of national government, but in, the, in their first uh, iteration of it with the Articles of Confederation, um, they, they didn't give the Articles, of, uh, con- they didn't give the United States government any taxing power, and they also didn't create an executive branch or a judicial branch. So the only, the only United States government we had um, under the Articles of Confederation was what was called the Continental Congress. Which is and a unicameral. Yeah, unicameral. It's, it's, and, yeah, continue. And it would make laws, and it would not enforce them, and it would not have its own courts to to um, interpret them either. And so, um, so they relied entirely on state state uh, law enforcement officials and state courts to interpret and apply federal law. And there was just no administration um, of of the United States government. So it could be run cheaply, and they didn't necessarily need to tax, but they didn't have a taxing power. And uh, all of that came to be seen as a hopeless defect that particularly on the military side, you know, the idea was we're actually going to need a United States army or this country is going to quickly, um, you know, be, be conquered and defeated and disappear. And there's really no way to have a United States army other than by um, having United States government that can organize it and can fund it. And the only way to fund it is going to be um, through taxation. So they, they certainly came to see a need for a United States government that, you know, had an executive branch, which would include a military. They had a little bit more of a debate about the judicial branch. And we'll get to that when we get to Article 3. Yeah, but I know, they need, but yeah I'm going to yeah. pause you right there and just say we need to talk more about this. But we're going to take we got to take just a quick moment before and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the Articles of Confederation and what some of those uh, framework issues were. Okay, so Ken, uh, before we broke for just a minute, you were talking about we need to go back. We need to talk about some of the potential problems in the Articles of Confederation, and and one of that was the inability of them to to raise money. As a matter of fact, 
the individuals who show up or, or, or well, anyway, continue yeah. your thought on that front. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you could compare that situation to the situation of the, of the United Nations today, I think. You know, the United Nations has all these member countries and it, it has a general assembly and it, it passes resolutions and it, it doesn't have any capacity to um, enforce its resolutions. It doesn't have its own significant executive branch. It doesn't have its own courts. Um, it's reliant on its, its member states to pay their dues. And, you know, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So the, the fiscal framework isn't solid. And the, the UN, you know, plays a certain role in world diplomacy, but it's not functioning like a real government. And, uh, and that is exactly the situation the United States government was in under the Articles of Confederation. So they, they, um, the, the framers came to believe, although they had different levels of um, different scopes of their ambition for how much the United States government should do, they, they all thought it should do something and it needed um, some money to do that, some resources to do that. And it needed to be able to raise its own uh, resources and not be dependent on the member states to, to pay their dues. And so out of that, there was a fairly broad consensus that, um, the, that not only should the United States Congress have the power to levy taxes directly on the people, rather than just having to um, ask the states to, to pay dues to support the United States government, but, but that in fact, that's the single most important power that, that, that Congress would have. And so that's why it's first, right? So if you look at Article 1, Section 8, what you read it already, but what you, what you didn't mention, although it was implicit in your reading, is that those are the first words of Article 1, Section yep. 8. So all the other powers um, that we'll end up talking about or that we have talked about come after that, but they start right away. You know, it gets pride of place. Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes. Now, they, they did put some some limits on that. And some of those limits are um, uh, right in um, uh, Article 1, Section 8. And, and some of them are um, uh, elsewhere scattered here and there uh, throughout uh, Article 1. Um, so the, the, the one that you see right in Article 1, Section 8, they use some, some terms that the Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Um, and that does, um, uh, you know, we might think of sort of technical meanings for excises, imposts, and duties. Um, taxes is a little more of a generic uh, catch-all term there. Um, uh, but th th it seems to indicate they have certain ideas about certain kinds of uh, taxes that can be laid, and, and, and they're authorizing that. And they, and they end up concluding about the duties, imposts, and excises, that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. So that's the first limitation that we can find on the, the use of the uh, taxing power. It's so in short, the, California couldn't get a different deal than New York when it comes to what's coming through borders and what's being paid. Exactly right. That no matter, so if you have goods being imported into a port of entry, exactly as you said, no matter whether the goods land in, in, in the San Pedro in California or whether they land at Port Elizabeth in New Jersey, um, the, the, the tariffs and duties and imposts have to be exactly the same everywhere. And that's important because one of the things we don't always think about in this era that you're talking about is this question of, are the states going to be com competing sovereign entities? And even post the, the constitutional contract, in what ways can they be independent uh, uh, entities? And in which ways do they have to be uniform so as not to then be trying to have potentially cleavages with them and other independent sovereign entities? Yeah. So, yeah, uniformity is very important. And interestingly, you know, although you quickly latched on to duties and imposts, which are things that are collected at um, ports of entry, um, excises 
has long been interpreted to mean um, um, all um, excise taxes, which are taxes on transactions. So that that might be um, not just at ports of entry. So, for instance, although most people don't really think about it much, um, probably most of our listeners have paid a, a federal excise tax in the last week or two because one of the federal excise taxes that we do pay is at the gasoline pump. Uh, right? sure. So there's, there's, uh, there's a federal gasoline tax that's per gallon, and that also has to be uniform everywhere in the United States, the tax rate. Um, so, so, that, so, that we, so we still see the U.S. government imposing excise taxes, which are taxes on transactions, sales taxes on some items. Now, you know, most of the time when we go to the store and pay sales tax, we're, we're, it's all local and state. There's, there's not federal excise tax on most ordinary sales. But um, gasoline's not the only product like that. Tobacco would be another one. You know, there, there's a few products here and there that, that uh, Congress has decided to impose excise taxes on um, for, for different kinds of reasons. I think with gasoline, it's just to try to distribute the cost of um, the, the budget of the, uh, the budget that the federal government uses to fund highways is, um, you know, that way it's kind of distributed across the people who use the highways to some extent. And, you know, whereas with tobacco, I think it's there in part to just discourage people from buying cigarettes. So there's, you know, different kinds of reasons that Congress might impose an excise tax. But those also have to be uniform in the sense of geographically uniform. They have to be yeah. the same. Everywhere. Now, now, there's some other restrictions, and this is going to get us, as I had mentioned earlier, into you know Article Nine as well on the taxation power, and you had alluded to. But before we do that, I'm going to have to pause this here uh, and just say this is going to be it for our preview of the midweek show. So, if you'd like to continue along with Ken and myself uh, and continue to get to hear some interpretation, understanding of the Constitution, which I just think is absolutely central uh, for anybody uh, to be a citizen, I, I, I just think that's part of the educational process we need. I would love for you to go along for that ride. And to do that, we'd love for you to be a supporter. And what's really great is you're going to get the rest of this uh, without any kind of ads or anything else going on. Uh, there's other kinds of benefits that you gain by becoming uh, a, a supporter besides just access to this show, the rest of the show, uh, and ad-free. That is, there's things like our Discord group. This show is a result of individuals on our very active Politics Guys Discord group. There's other even politics guys gear and benefits at different levels of support. So to check that out, if you want to listen to the rest of this episode, simply head to patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you'd like to support us, there's other ways as well. You can head to Venmo where we're at politics guys. You can also do it through PayPal. And all of this is going to open up your ability to listen to the rest of this preview. So all of those support links are in the show notes. Just head down there and you can tap at them or you can direct your browser to politicsguys.com slash support. Now, if for some reason you're just not in a position to do that, you can reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com and we'd love to be able to help you out if you're having uh, uh, financial difficulties and we'll get you set up. Um, whether you're a supporter or not, we'd love for you to think about those opportunities. We'd really love for you to continue along with this show. Uh, but just quickly, I want to let you know that you can always reach out to us at the mail at politicsguys.com or on Facebook. All of that, again, is in our show note links. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode fully this weekend. We hope you'll join us then.